We thank you for bringing us all here this morning, Father, for bringing us safely to gather and proclaim your name, Father, together. And we do exalt you this morning, Lord. Like that song says, for you are above all the earth and far above all gods. We ask that you would just open our eyes and open our hearts to hear the word this morning, Lord. And to honor and to glorify you above all things. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Last week, Ken asked me to uh, give call to worship last Sunday, and he said that it would hopefully help to shake some of the butterflies for when I was speaking, and that definitely did not happen. (laughs) But he said something else to me this week that was, I think, really important to remember, not just this morning, but every time we're gathered here, and really every day throughout our lives that Well, especially when we're gathered here to proclaim the name of God, that it's not, the focus is not on who is doing the speaking, but rather what is being spoken, namely the word of God. So although this is definitely an unfamiliar environment and position for me to be in, I just, my prayer this morning is that the word of God would be proclaimed and that he would be glorified in its proclamation. So with that, I'll have you turn to Acts chapter 17, which is our main text this morning. And while you're turning there, I'll just give a bit of context. Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he's just left um, Berea and has arrived in Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy there. And where we'll pick up in verse 16, um, he's waiting for them and he begins to walk through the city of Athens and it says that he's provoked. So if we'll just read that if you would stand with me um, for the reading of the word this morning. Acts 17 verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius and the Arapagite, I don't know how to pronounce that, and the woman named Damaris and others with them. You may be seated. I was really encouraged to hear the song selection um, that Aaron picked out, especially that last song, I Exalt Thee, because it goes right along with, um, with the message today. The, the title of the sermon is God All in All, and the title seeks to show that God is sovereign ruler far above all things, and as the song said, above all the earth, above all gods, and that we are exalt, to exalt him as such. And we must proclaim him and his authority, no matter what the setting or no matter what the area of life we may be in. But we must proclaim him because he's the only basis for all truth. He's the creator of all things. And as a... Um, the title says he is all in all. So getting back to the text, and I, ha- I do have notes here, so I'll try to look up as much as possible, but forgive me if I look down to read and catch my place. Regarding the writings of Paul in Scripture, many people make the claim, rightly make the claim that they're very technical and academic. And although that is true, we can't ignore the fact that they're also very practical. And this passage in Acts 17 is just one example in Scripture of where Paul himself practically applies some of his own teachings. Um, Specifically, I've paralleled this with Romans chapter 1. So, if you would like to turn to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we can see sort of a summary or possibly an outline that goes right along with this passage in Acts. 
So in, in Romans, Romans, which was, um, if I can find my place here, it's a book. It's, it's a, Romans itself is a book that brings together so many of the important and um, just some of the greatest themes in all of Scripture and brings it into this one book. So it's no surprise that we find revelance, we, that we find references to its um, teachings throughout Scripture, and it's such, it's essentially just a gold mine of, of just truths about God and, um, and all of Scripture. So, but reading in, uh, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, going through 23, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heavens against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If you've been around here very long, you'll have undoubtedly heard that uh, passage quoted as a lot of us are, um, as we've been studying and talking about apologetics. And it's a common verse uh, and passage to be used. But throughout this message, that's just kind of a summary of of the different themes that we will be looking at. As we see in Acts 17, that Paul, he brilliantly demonstrates the truths found in Romans chapter 1. This starts off as he's preaching... In the open air of Athens, which was one of the leading cultural and um, intellectual centers of that day in Athens, Greece. And specifically, he's taken to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus was where the chief council of Athens met. And I'm told that at this time in history their function was to oversee the issues of morality, education, and religion. So you can imagine in a society that did not know God or honor God, the opposition that Paul would have faced while he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus and calling out, calling out the idolatry of the nation and the the folly of the philosophers there and the suppression of the truth of God and as he calls them to repentance. You can see even in the text the opposition that he had. He was called a babbler and in the end they mocked him or some mocked him but some eyes were opened to see the truth that he spoke of of God's word. So it's passages like this that are examples for us to show us that Christ... The proclamation of Christ and his word is not to be absent 
from the public square, but it's to be taken into even the most hostile environments, and we're not to shy away, but rather jump at the opportunity, opportunity to do something such as that. And as we have read, that he is the giver of life and breath and everything. And to honor this would be honoring to the Lord to do so. Um, As I get into the main body of the message, um, if you have a copy of the sermon notes, you'll see a heading. It just simply says that Paul proclaims God and his authority in the following. And then following are three points. And we'll take them one at a time. Number one is revelation and religion. Two is creation and creator. And number three, philosophy and science. So number one, revelation and religion. We see that Paul proclaims God. Proclaims the revelation of God and proclaims him um, when referring to religion and as the only true God. First off, starting with Revelation, we find in in that passage in Romans, and especially the what is called general revelation, which says and shows that God has revealed Himself through creation, through the world, so much so and with such clarity that man is without excuse to deny Him. I was reading through my study Bible here and found a, a section that was talking about general revelation and there was just one line that I thought put it so well, that God's world is not a veil hiding the power and majesty of its creator, but rather, in the words of David in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So when we're speaking of general revelation, that's what we're talking about, that there is a general revelation to all people and that they have no excuse to deny God. And that's why Paul says in this chapter of Acts that the age of ignorance is over and he calls and God calls all men to repentance. Unfortunately, even though God's fingerprints, if you will, can be seen all over creation, sinful man still fails to worship his creator and is instead quick to turn to other gods. And with that said, we'll reread uh, verses 22 and 23 of our text where Paul begins at the Areopagus saying, and it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So right away we just see that the city is filled with idols, and that should immediately raise a red flag in our minds. But the point I want to focus on a little bit is that all men are religious 
in one way or another, whether or not um, we have, whether or not we're worshiping the true triune God of Scripture, or have, as they did in Athens, erected statues, material statues that are venerated and worshipped, or whether it just be something that we've worked up in our minds, something that we love and something that satisfies us and is treasured more than God in our mind. So we see that even the atheist who denies God ultimately has a God of his own and is religious in that way, whether it be his own reason or um, it, it could be anything, nature. So, what I'd like to do is just sort of tie this into our society today. While we may not see images or or carved statues and things of that nature very often, like they had in Athens, we most certainly have, our, our nation is certainly filled with idols. It could be, it could be celebrities or music, cars and technology. Anything, as I said, that satisfies which is, and comes from the heart, which is exalted and satisfies you more than God himself. I know I'm guilty of holding trivial possessions a little too close to my heart. A good example, I, I work in technology, so I'm always keeping up with the latest and greatest devices and applications and programs and whatnot. And I have to constantly guard myself so I'm not, I'm not constantly researching and watching reviews and coveting the latest smartphone, which certainly can happen. And this was um, revealed a little bit more to me this week or something, I, I heard of a study that happened, I don't know if it was maybe a year ago, and I heard of it this week, and it was somewhat disturbing. I don't know exactly how the information was collected or how accurate it is, but I did read about it, and if it's true, it is very troubling. The title of one of the articles was, read something like this, that we love our iPhones literally. And the study claims that the chemical patterns and the chemical reactions in your brain that go on in your brain when you see a new iPhone or get a new iPhone or or smartphone or whatever it is are strikingly similar to those that go on when you see a loved one, a family member, a parent, your husband or wife. And the same goes for when you break your phone or lose it. It's like breaking up, going through, and, or just maybe it's someone going away for a long time and you can't see them. And it sort of surprised me and didn't at the same time, considering the nature of our, our culture But I really hope that I don't fall into that category that venerates their 
electronic device in such a way that finds the, I hope I don't fall into the category of the man who loves, who when seeing his parents or his family members or friends, who loves them in the same way or just as much as he loves the stupid contraption of metal and glass and chemicals that's vibrating across the room. It sounds kind of like a silly or extreme example, but I don't think it is when you consider when you consider these other idols that we place before God himself. Consider the man who worships a statue or a celebrity and pours out its love and veneration, his love and veneration for it, but at the same time despises God the one who created him, the one who is gracious and merciful enough to give him the very breath in his lungs and life. He's gracious enough to let him live another day. And the consequences of that, of denying that God, our God, the true God, are far greater than just loving your smartphone in the same way you love your family members, as terrible as that is. But I don't think it's such an over-exaggerated example. But it leads to a question. How do we deal with this idolatry and, and, and false religion that we do find in our in our nation. And to do so, we can turn back to the text and see how Paul dealt with it in Athens. If you notice in verse 23, there's a reference to the altar, to the unknown God. It says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. There are many theories about what this unknown god may have been, what this altar may have been, but one such is that it was the altar. um, Let me find my place here so I remember the name of it. It could have been the altar to the 12 gods, which was erected in Athens with the purpose of not leaving any god out of their worship. The ironic thing about that of course, is that not only did it leave the true God out of their worship, but just the very act of erecting the altar in itself was an act of idolatry against him. So there's the the idolatry in the religion we see in Athens. And Paul, he takes this and he uses it in order to segue into his explanation of the true God, of his creation, and of who he is. So although, although this altar and all of these altars were, and idols were such horrific things, he uses them to relate to those in Athens in order to segue into or provide talking points to um, speak of the true God of scripture. So that's what leads us to our second point. Hopefully I don't fly through this in five minutes. The second point, creation and creator. 
which shows that Paul proclaims God in creation. He proclaims him as creator and also proclaims him as Lord. So, in picking up in verse 24, I'll read half of verse 23. He uses again the unknown God as a segue. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods of time and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So we've already um, sort of touched on the on general revelation that we see God in all of creation. But this passage also gives us a glimpse of how God, not just how God is revealed in the world, but how he created the world and is Lord over it. Again, um, he says to the God who made the world and everything in it. But he goes on to talk about other things. It's not just the animals and the plants and mankind. But it's all things, whether material or immaterial, even down to the allotted periods of time, specific time frames in which events may happen in our lives, or even the boundaries of the places in which we choose to live. All of it, all of it was created, and nothing ever since the beginning of eternity, nothing was made, and no things happen. No, um, no time period is arbitrary. No, um, no purchase of land or anything happens external or outside of God's eternal decree. So it's not just he's the creator of all material things. He's the creator of all material and immaterial and all events and things that happen. Well, I should say... All things are within his decree. Um, So we get a glimpse of God's sovereignty over all things. Which leads to his... um, Well, I'll I'll go here into the next portion of this that God... Paul focuses in on the fact that God himself is not a created being. For he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If we jump down to verse 29, it says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So we can look back to our first point and see that, again, what was so wrong about that altar to the 
unknown God, considering the nature of God, not to mention he is the only God, And, and we see that not, not only we're, we are incapable of even imagining the divine creator apart from what is revealed to us in scripture. And even what is revealed to us is often done so in anthropomorphic terms so that our finite minds can have some sort of comprehension of who God is. And anthropomorphic just meaning that something described in human terms as being like human. So if we are unable to even imagine and comprehend God in our minds or create a God in our minds apart from Scripture, how much less are we able to create him out of, to create him at all, to create him out of material, immaterial things, obviously. Such a feat is impossible, and just the attempt to do so is incredibly idolatrous. So we see that Paul proclaims God as the creator He's not himself created. We see him in creation, and he's also Lord over all things, which I think is a very important part of this passage and thing to remember in this day. As we'll see um, in verse 24, again, he said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, And just kind of going back to the other, uh, and along with the other two points we see so often, the attempt to create a God, even among Christians, one that we're comfortable with. In other words, we take portions of Scripture, the portions that we like, the love of God, and we sacrifice all the attributes of God that are revealed to us in Scripture, but if they don't really, we don't really want to be held accountable to them, we don't want to, they make us feel uncomfortable, we just kind of throw them away and create a God in our minds that we're comfortable with. And so often, among um, even Christians, we, you end up with a God that looks a little something like the God who created all things, the God who does give me life and breath and gives me everything, but the God who is not really ruler and reigning over my day-to-day life. There's um, the problem. You can't have the first two statements in that definition without the third necessarily following. 
You can't have God as creator. You can't have him as the giver of life and the giver of everything to you and sacrifice his lordship. That is, if the... Um, Yeah, well, a, a, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the offices of Christ in our Wednesday night study, and similar topic came up. And Ken asked the question, of the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, which do we see in our society is most likely to be ignored or least likely to be accepted in our society today. And I think there was unanimous agreement that it is the kingship of Christ. And a quote, a quote was read by Charles Spurgeon, and I'm just going to um, read that here because it sums it up so well. Spurgeon said in a sermon he preached entitled Divine Sovereignty, Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop, to fashion the worlds and to make the stars. They will allow him to be in his almonry, to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated, and then it is that we men turn a deaf ear to us, For God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with his scepter in his hand and his crown upon his head. So just a reminder that we cannot forget that God is the creator of all things. But he's also Lord over all things. And I think those are... um, two points that Paul is really trying to bring out in this passage. That he's, he's proclaiming it to the men of Athens at the Areopagus. And we must do the same. And that's all I have for this point. So I'll move on to Third point, how Paul proclaims God in his, and his authority in philosophy and science. And I'll read Acts 17, 26 through 29. I'll back up to, yeah, 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods of time and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And then in 27, we see that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. 
yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We get a little glimpse here into the sort of the philosophy and science of the day on a, a historical note. It's interesting that in this ancient world, the three big mysteries of philosophy and science were the questions of life, motion, and being. And it was, though, it were the, was those questions that perplexed the philosophers and scientists of that day as they still do so many people today, even the, though the answer to those questions is so simple. And Paul sums it up in a single moment. In him, we live and move and have our being. So all people have been brought into existence, into life, motion, and being only by God's divine decree and through God's, and God's providence. Paul uses the, he quotes from some of the poets of that day, because the Athenians, they didn't understand or know the Old Testament. So we see again Paul um, using something that they are familiar with, in this case, the writings of their poets, in order to segue into the topic of, into the truth of God, He quotes their poets in verse 28 that said, For we are indeed his offspring. Now, his in that statement was referring to Zeus, which was the head of the Greek gods. But although he is that he was a false god, Paul nevertheless uses it as an illustration to illustrate the facts about the one true God. Going back to, we, we have the, the questions of life. And we again see that all men are religious, but when they don't subject themselves to the divine creator, but instead replace him with the created God in which they desire or an altar, anything they may try, At that point, you immediately sacrifice the ability to provide any cogent answer to these questions of life, motion, and being, and hence the three great mysteries of that day. Even their philosophers could not come up with an explanation for those questions and disagreed among themselves. If we look back a little bit earlier, we see that Paul conversed with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, 
because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. If you look at that word babbler in the Greek, it can literally translate as seed picker, referring to birds that would come down and pick scraps of food and seeds off the ground. So it can be said that they were accusing Paul of simply being a babbler, a gossiper of random scraps of knowledge that he may have picked up here and there. And it seems to follow when you look at verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. But they didn't seem to be taking him seriously. And little did they know the powerful and complete message that Paul was speaking. They would have done well to heed what he was saying and to take him seriously rather than just um, see it as something that some argument that Paul had scraped together from random things he picked up here and there. Because like I said, even their own philosophers could not answer the big questions of life. The Epicureans believed the purpose of life was to live a life of pleasure, freedom from pain, freedom from fear. And the Stoics, they sought to live in harmony with nature, to depend on their own reason and on other self-sufficient powers. And these seem to be similar philosophies to um, some of the things we see today. But Paul stands up and proclaims, and we must do so likewise, that although we may try, like the Epicureans did, to live a life of pleasure, free from pain and suffering and fear, only God can provide true pleasure and freedom from these things for all eternity. And although we may try as the Stoics did to rely on our own reason and self-sufficiency in order to get through life and, and see truth, only God can provide a basis for any true and reliable reason. And ultimately, only God can provide any cogent answer to the questions of life, motion, and being. And any other answer would wrongly, I would argue, seeks, would wrongly seek to bring glory to man and exalt man rather than exalt God. And I'm through my three points, which went rather quickly, but I do have a, a closing section, and I'll just close with that. And if... <clears throat> things go a little short, I'm sure people will be a little bit thankful for that. So in closing, I'll turn you to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is just filled with awesome truths about the blessings in Christ and how we should be thankful and offer up our thanksgiving and prayer to him. And it's such a great 
summary and wrap up of why all of these things, why God being revealed to us in his creation, being the only true, the only right religion, being the creator of all things, not being created himself and Lord over all things, and that he is the answer and the authority over all questions of philosophy and science, why all of that should lead us to be absolutely thankful and offer up our praise to our Heavenly Father. If we read in Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's just amazing to see the result of of all of these glorious truths that we see in Scripture. And like while Paul is speaking in, in that passage in Acts of the judgment day and the fact that the age of ignorance is over and all men are commanded to repent and believe, we who, by God's grace, have repented and believed can rejoice in the fact that God has given a special revelation that is further revelation of his plan of salvation his sending his son to be the savior of sinners like us. And we can rejoice in that fact and now proclaim, take that message and be like Paul and proclaim it. Proclaim that God is far above all rule and authority, as it says, above all council of Athens, above any power that you can think of, the U.S. government, whatever it may be. His name is far above all names above the Epicureans and the Stoics and all the well-renowned philosophers and scientists of today, that God is far above all these things, and we, being in Christ, can rejoice in that fact and proclaim it, proclaim the culmination of all these things, which is the absolute power and authority and glory of God, who is all in all can truly answer the questions of life and ultimately give freedom from this life, which at at times can be a burden. But it's just amazing to see that while we may not be so quick to accept or we may not want to accept God as 
ruler over all things and subject every area of our lives to him, that when we do and we see the, the absolute glory and majesty that it brings to him, and then to think that one day we may share in that in eternity, in paradise, it should be something that we're constantly striving towards and rejoicing in. It'll be infinitely better than living how we would like to live and making the choices that we would like to live apart from his truths that he's revealed to us in Scripture. So with that, I'll just close us in prayer here. Father, we thank you for your word and for the examples that you give us in it, the example that that Paul is to us, how we can go out and proclaim your name, which is high above all other names, Lord. Proclaim you as the ultimate, highest authority over all things. Proclaim everything as subject to you, Lord, for you are you are the creator of all things, the giver of life and breath. And you are Lord over all things. Lord, and please just give us the strength, the strength to and the the courage to take your word, and to take your truth into even the most hostile places, Lord, into all areas of life, wherever it may be, whoever we may be speaking to. And Lord, lead every conversation to you and your word and ultimately proclaim your glory. Proclaim your power and authority all for your glory, Lord, and that we would take our personal feelings, our personal um, things that we would want to do, Lord, but that would not be in line with what you have commanded, Lord, that we would set those aside, set aside anything that we would um, seek to have to bring pleasure into our lives apart from you. Set all those things aside, Lord, and put you first in all things and exalt you above all things. In your name, amen.